I'd like to direct your attention to the New Testament this um, evening, to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4. I must say that it's a privilege to be with you this day and to join you in worship, to have our minds directed to the Lord, even to the very glories of heaven in Revelation 21, uh, keeping before us how brief life is, how glorious God is, and how he is worthy to be served. Uh, Ephesians 4, our scripture reading begins at verse 17 to the end. In my own church, I preached through this uh, grand letter and hope to direct our minds uh, to the call to practical godliness and holiness. Ephesians 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let every one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one, other, one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The text then for this evening sermon is the verses 25 to 27. Uh, actually, it's this 28 to Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let's have the prayer of illumination now. 
should have done that before, but we can do that now. Let's ask him for his grace and presence. We confess our darkness of mind, O Lord, slowness of heart. Please come illumine our minds and change our hearts and our lives so that receptive to thy precious word, we would follow Jesus. Anoint us with the Holy Spirit be among us and glorify thy precious name. In Jesus' name, amen. What does the Christian life uh, look like? Is being a Christian just something doctrinal, impacting what we believe? Or is it just something emotional? just impacting how we feel from time to time. Well, the grace of God does impact our thinking and what we believe, and it does impact our emotions and what we feel, but it's not just something doctrinal and it's not just something emotional, it's actually very practical. In our text, Paul says it impacts our speaking and our feeling and are doing. Let's uh, see that this evening as we hear this exhortation to practical godliness. And that's what you can write over the sermon as our theme, practical godliness. First of all, how it's said. Secondly, what we're told. And thirdly, whom we need. At the beginning of Ephesians 4, uh, Paul began the more practical section of his letter to the Ephesian believers. After all, uh, the grace of God leads to a new life for God, and that new life will be seen in church life and in our daily life. And what then is the believer to seek after and pursue? And Paul has said that in the opening 16 verses, we're, we are to pursue unity in the church. Because the church is one, we are called to unity. And now, in the verses 17 to the end, he says that because the church is holy, we are to pursue purity, unity and purity. Yeah, how are we to live? Well, Paul in verse 17 says it quite bluntly. Uh, we are to live noticeably different lives from the unbelieving world. After all, you're different if you're a believer at the very core of your being and therefore live differently. That's how Paul explains it theologically. He's saying you belong to the body of Christ and the body of Christ is holy. You must live holy, live differently. You've been changed. So Paul explains it theologically. Then Paul explains it figuratively. Uh, in the verses 22 to 24, with the picture of putting off the rags of sin and putting on the garments of righteousness. The Christian life is to be a new life with a new set of clothes. He explains it theologically and figuratively, and now in verses 25 to the end, he explains it very practically. And, and in this first point, 
I want to explain the, the broad outline, the broad characteristics of this practical godliness, how this call comes to us. What are the parameters of this practical godliness? What are some general observations that I can make first before getting to the specific exhortations? And, and there's four things that I want to say here about these, these broad parameters and how this is all said and framed. The first thing that I want to highlight here is that godliness has a relational element. Uh, godliness has a relational element. These exhortations in the verses before us deal with our relationships with one another. Uh, we are members one of another, he says. Uh, he's addressing uh, us in relationship one to another. Practical godliness has a very relational element, not, not just vertically towards God, but also horizontally with other people. That's what Paul is addressing here. Godliness has to do with how we treat other people. Uh, godliness has to do with how we treat other people at home, at work, at church. To be godly doesn't mean that you become a monk living in a monastery, hiding away in a cell, withdrawing from the world and having this inward focus. No, it has to do with going into the world and treating people the way that God treats us. And the Bible is full of instruction about how we are to treat each other as Paul does here. It matters what we do in relationships with one another so that Jesus will even say, whatever you've done to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. Matthew 25, verse 40. So in the life of godliness, it's manifested in this relational element. Secondly, practical godliness has a negative element. It has a negative element. There are some things to put off, he has just said. There are things to say no to. Specifically in these verses, we're to put away lying. We're to stop being sinful, sinfully angry. Or to stop stealing. There are things to stop with, sins to stop with. It's not enough, young people, to say, well, I want to do some good things now. Now, don't get me wrong. Believers do want to do what is good and what is God honoring, but we, we don't stop there because there are evil things to pluck up and put away. If I can use an illustration, I mean, if a farmer's field in planting time is full of weeds, and the farmer says, you know what, this year, I'm not gonna plow up this field. I'm just gonna spread some seeds all around and hope for the best. Do you know that's not going to work? If you want the seeds to grow, you've got to get rid of the weeds. Otherwise, the weeds, the thorns, will choke the good seed and the seeds will not grow. And so it is in the Christian life. There are things to pluck up in our lives. Uh, sinful temptations, sinful attitudes that we have to deal with, sinful behaviors, sinful patterns that we need to break with. We've got to put them off. Sin has to be removed. Sin has to be put away. So yes, to 
practical godliness, there is this negative element. Sin must be put away. But then there's the third thing. There also has to be a positive element in the Christian life. There has to be a positive element in the Christian life. Now, some people focus on the negative elements in their Christianity. For them, being a Christian it means, well, I don't do this, and I don't do that, and I don't go there. Their Christianity is about the things they don't do, the things they don't say, the places they don't attend. Now, I'm not saying that there are no negatives in the Christian life. I'm not saying that anything goes in the Christian life and that the Christian never says no to anything. I've just said that in my previous point, that there is the negative element in the Christian life. But if our Christianity is just about the things that we don't do and the places we don't go and the things that we don't say, that sort of negative Christianity produces a hard legalistic, negativistic kind of Christianity. It's important that we don't do certain things and don't go certain places, that we say no to certain things. But it's more important that we say yes to other things. It's not only important that we stop with certain things and wrong things in our lives, for we are to do the good things instead. It's not only important that we stop with God-dishonoring things, but we are to seek to do God-honoring things in the right way and with the right motives. Plus, we need to realize that many uh, unbelieving people can be moral people, and they're often content with saying, well, but I don't steal, and I don't rob, and I don't murder, and I don't gossip. But that's not enough. The Christian life goes beyond the negative to the positive in union and communion with Christ, seeking God's glory. So there are things we don't want to do, and there are things that we do want to do. That's how practical godliness has this relational element, this negative element, this positive element, and fourthly, a reasonable element. There's the reasonable element. There are things to put off and things to put on. There are things not to do and there are things we are to do, but in God's kindness and grace, he gives us reasons for that. Here are reasons that the Apostle Paul supplies for us, not just telling us to do certain things and not do other things. He gives us reasons. The Lord treats us as reasonable people, thinking creatures. He explains why there is to be this practical religion. You know, robots or machines are programmed to do certain things, and they do it without receiving explanations. But the Lord does give us reasons. He does give us explanations of why we are not to do certain things and why we are to do other things instead. Of course, the Lord could simply tell us 
give us a list of rules without explaining it, and he has the authority to expect us to obey. But in his mercy, he explains to us why we should not do certain things and why we should do other things. Can I put it in the words of what Paul says in Romans 12? This is your reasonable service. And there he uses the Greek word logical. Practical godliness then has this relational element to it. It impacts how we deal with one another. It has a negative element. It says no to certain things. It has a positive element. It says yes to other things. And it has a reasonable element with explanation in God's kindness. And I wonder if your godliness has these elements to it. Does your godliness impact how you deal with one another? Does your godliness impact your relationships with others? And does your godliness have a negative element? Do you say no to certain things? And does your godliness have a positive element to it? Do you say yes to other things? Do we put off sin and do we put on righteousness? And do we understand why we want to do what we want to do? Why we should be godly in our feeling and thinking and doing? Does it make sense? Biblical sense, uh, logical sense in the logic of grace. Well, there, there you have, I would say, the broad outline, the broad characteristics of practical godliness that Paul sets forth. Now, let's look at the specific callings that, that were issued here. What is it that we are told? In the verses 25 to 28, there are three specific things Paul deals with. Uh, speak truthfully, be angry sinlessly, and work honestly. Let's look at those three. First of all, speak truthfully. Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Yes, if you're in fellowship with the Lord, by the grace of the Lord, if Christ has become precious, then we're to speak truthfully. We're to put away lying, put away falsehood. That's the negative. Yeah? That's the negative element in this first exhortation. Put away falsehood, put away lying. Yeah, after all, the devil is a liar. It's one of the main characteristics of the devil. What did he say to, to cause Eve to sin? Well, he spoke a lie. No, you, you will not surely die if you take of that forbidden fruit. But our first parents fell for the lie, and they believed the lie, and all the sin and suffering and all the iniquity and misery in our world is because a lie was told and a lie was believed. And to lie is to do what Satan does. Proverbs 20, 12, verse 22, lying lips 
are an abomination to the Lord. Yeah, he hates lying lips. But lying is everywhere. It's in the world of business. It's in the halls of government. It's in the media. It's in commercials and advertisement. Uh, people can look us straight in the eye and with a look of sincerity tell a barefaced lie. Now, why does the CRA need to conduct random audits of businesses and individuals? It's because people lie. Why did someone invent the lie detector? It's because people lie. Uh, lying is everywhere. A research tells us that 30% of people admit to lying on their resume. 60% of adults, apparently, to, according to research, can hardly have a 10-minute conversation without at least lying once. On average, three lies are told in every 10-minute conversation. Now, people lie for all kinds of reasons. They lie to save face. They lie to shift blame. They lie to avoid confrontation. They lie to get their own way. They lie to be nice. They lie to make themselves look better. They lie to exaggerate. They lie to make others look bad. They lie. Tell falsehoods. And there's the falsehood of rumor. I mean, how often do we pass on something we hear? We may not be 100% sure that it's completely true, but we just pass it on. And Paul says, put away lying and falsehood. And who can say, well, I'm innocent. Who can say, I've always told the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? We're, we're by nature and by practice liars, boys and girls, young people. We can lie about others. We can lie to others. We can lie to ourselves. Worst of all, we lie to God. And Paul says we have to put it off. We have to put it away. We have to stop lying to each other. Stop with the pretense. Stop with the falsehood. And if you're converted by the power of the Holy Spirit, then the word of truth has changed you. Then you've believed the word of truth, and you've bowed under the word of truth, and you see the error of falsehood and lying, the lies that you've told and the lies that you believed, and you've become different, a person of truth. That's the positive. Tell the truth. Speak the truth. As the Heidelberg Catechism, one of the uh, confessions that we hold dear in our Free Reformed Churches, Lord's Day 43, dealing with the Ninth Commandment, explains it this way. We are to love the truth, speak it uprightly, and confess it. Also that I defend and promote as much as I'm able the honor and good character of my neighbor. And then the reason we're to do this, Paul adds in verse 25, 
for we are members one of another. Put away falsehood, speak the truth, because we're members one of another. We're part of the same body of believers. And if we're going to flourish as one body, then there has to be truth in order to trust each other. That's how it works in a good marriage. You need to trust each other. Your marriage will not prosper if you're not honest with each other, if you don't trust each other. Lying destroys trust. Lying destroys fellowship. That's how Paul explains this first exhortation. Speak truthfully. Secondly, be angry sinlessly. Verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Notice how here in verse 26, Paul begins with the positive this time. And notice that Paul doesn't say, don't be angry. No, he says, be angry. Anger is a God-given emotion. God has made us capable of feeling anger. God is angry. Romans 1 verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Psalm 7 verse 11, God is angry with the wicked every day. Jesus was angry with the religious leaders because of their unbelief and hardness of heart. Mark 3 verse 5. He was angry with the money changers who were doing their business in the house of God. And he drove them out. What we need today is more anger, but then in a righteous anger. I mean, people are not angry enough in a certain sense. We should be angry that millions of unborn children are murdered. We should be angry when children are abused. We should be angry that women are exploited and mistreated. And we should be angry at blatant wrongs and evils that are rampant today. That God's name is blasphemed should anger us. We shouldn't be indifferent to that and shrug our shoulders at things that God is angry with. So no, not all anger is wrong. But not all anger is right either. Be angry and do not sin. There's the negative. And there's a fine line here, isn't there? We can easily move from righteous anger to sinful anger in a half a second. What can begin as righteous anger can easily turn into unrighteous anger. And anger is an emotion that we often express wrongly and sinfully. Now, when is anger sinful? Anger is sinful when it's habitual, when someone is always angry or quickly angry. We're sinfully angry when we lose control of our emotions, when we hurt with our words or with our deeds. We are sinfully angry when we fly off into a rage or explode or rant or rave. 
On the other hand, others never blow their tops. They're just sinfully angry by always quietly stewing and muttering and withdrawing. We're sinfully angry when we speak bitter, bitter words, and cutting words, and hurtful words. It's sinful anger when we feed our anger. We cherish our anger. And that's why Paul goes on to say in verse 26, and don't let the sun go down on your anger or wrath. Paul uses a different word for anger here. It has to do with an angry mood, a resentful spirit. Don't let the sun go down with you still angry. Don't stay angry. Put anger away. As the day winds down, deal with the issues that need to be dealt with before the Lord and with one another as soon as you can. And don't let bitterness grow or don't coddle the hurt into the night. And then Paul explains in verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. You see, what he's saying is Satan comes very close to angry people. And Satan is looking to come in and settle in. And he loves it when we're upset people, when we're annoyed people, when we're resentful people. And he's saying unresolved conflict opens the door for the devil in our marriages and opens the door for the devil in our families and in our church and in our lives. So work through the issues and don't give the devil a foothold in your life. Keep short accounts. Set things right that need to be set right. If we don't, it will eat away at our souls. Speak truthfully, first of all. Be angry sinlessly, secondly. And now thirdly, work honestly. Verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Again, there's the negative. Let the thief no longer steal. Let him that stole steal no more. If anyone is stealing, he must stop. It seems that there were those among the Ephesian believers who had in their past been, um, had been stealing, uh, gotten things through stealing. Of course, in Ephesus at this time, they didn't have a welfare system. They, they got no handouts from the government, and some of them had turned to stealing in order to make ends meet. But the Lord has come to them with the gospel, and he has changed them. And it may be that some of them were still struggling with the temptation to take what wasn't theirs. Because that's what a thief does. A thief takes what belongs to someone else and doesn't return it. And we can steal by deceit. And we can steal by dishonesty. We might steal from our employer by showing up late. Or we can steal from our employer by showing up on time, but being lazy and a slacker. And so Paul says, don't do that. Instead, do honest work 
work with your hands. There's the positive. And, and, and then the word that Paul uses in the original for working has the idea of laboring to the point of sweat and exhaustion and leading to tiredness. But Paul is saying there is dignity in work. God has ordained for us to work. There is the importance of hard work. We're not put on this world to be idle. We're not put on this world just to play and just to amuse ourselves and just to entertain ourselves and just to scroll mindlessly on our phones. We've been placed on this world to work. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. Yeah, we may enjoy times of rest and recreation, no doubt. But we've been put on this world to work. And that work, Paul specifies, has to be honest work, or as the authorized version has to be good work. I read of someone who wanted to work in Toronto for a company that designs video games. She began working there, but could not stay there because she found that the goal of the company was to produce video games that were violent and immoral. It has to be something good. Now, there's a task for the young people. Here's guidance counseling for you, 101. What kind of a job does the Lord want you to have? You ever ask that, young people? Well, ask the Lord to direct you. Um, see what interests you have and what gifts he's given to you. But in this lazy society, this pleasure-seeking society, we're to give ourselves to the work that God has called us to. That could be paid work, it could be unpaid work. Now why? Well, Paul gives the reason, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Do you notice that's the reason he gives? Paul doesn't say work hard so that you have more yourself, so that you can get a bigger home, so that you can enjoy a more comfortable lifestyle so that you can go on an extra holiday every year. Now he says, work so that you may share with others in need. Might be able to share with others. And John Wesley said to his people this short phrase, gain all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. Don't work to have work to give. That's what godliness looks like. Speaking truthfully, being angry sinlessly, and working honestly. But does that not show whom we need? Our third point, whom we need. You see, it's not enough that we stop with bad habits. We have to learn good habits. And we need to live with the right focus. I mean, a man may stop stealing because he's been incarcerated, put in prison in solitary confinement, and no longer has the opportunity to steal. But just because someone is not stealing for the time doesn't mean that he is no longer a thief. He might just not have the opportunity to do it. He might be a thief between jobs. So since thieves don't always steal, and drunks are not always drunk, 
And liars don't always lie, and angry people are not always angry. That doesn't mean that there's been a change of heart and a change of life. That doesn't mean that there's been grace transforming them. And how long will it be before the thief, the liar, or the drunkard is back to his old ways or takes up another sin? Friends, we don't just need the law. We need the gospel. We don't just need education or legislation. We need salvation and sanctification that comes through a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need Christ. I wonder if you feel that when you hear this exhorta these exhortations from Paul. Need Christ, who never lied. He always spoke the truth. He is the truth, and he spoke the truth in love. And when he was angry, his anger was a sinless anger, righteous, holy anger, and he never stole. He did honest work. He worked with his hands the things that were good. He went about doing good, and he shared with those in need. In fact, he let himself be taken with wicked hands. Let his pure and sinless hands be nailed to the cross to pay for the wicked lies that we have told, the sinful anger we have displayed, the laziness and greediness that has marked us. And he shows mercy for the sake of his finished work to people like you and me, someone like Peter, who lied and said, no, I don't know that man. To someone like John and James, who were called sons of thunder for a reason. They must have had anger issues. He showed mercy to the thief on the cross, who asked for mercy. And I wonder if we ask for mercy with those sinners, like Peter and James and John, and the thief on the cross. Who here doesn't need Christ? Have you always told the truth? Have you never ranted or raved angrily or stewed inwardly? Have you never stolen from your parents? Have you never stolen from others? Have you never stolen from your boss? Have you never stolen from God? And with our need for salvation, let us turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. And with our need for sanctification, let us turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. With our need for forgiveness, let us turn to Jesus. And with our need for renewal, let us turn to Jesus, because he's the one who teaches us to love the truth and speak it uprightly. He teaches us how to be angry for the right reasons and in the right way and how to work honestly, to share generously. He teaches us by his Holy Spirit. He teaches us. Yeah, he teaches a liar to become a truth teller. He teaches us how to be good and angry. That's the title of one of the books that I have, How to Be Good and Angry, Handling Your Anger Rightly. He knows how to turn a burglar into a benefactor, a robber, into a worker and a giver, 
I know if you're a believer here this evening, you desire to practice it more consistently, faithfully. But he gives grace to own up where you failed and to take refuge to Christ and to ask for grace. And he delights to give grace. And if we have given Satan a foothold so that you're telling those lies and you're being lazy, Jesus knows how to deliver you. He has all power in heaven and on earth. He brings us to himself. He gives us his Holy Spirit. He makes us people in our salvation and sanctification who need the Lord Jesus Christ. So that we pray, Lord, help me. Help me thy will to do. Thy truth I will pursue. Teach me to fear. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, apply these things to our hearts and our lives. Also with all the, the failings and weaknesses and the struggles that we may have in the life of sanctification, Satan likes to get a foothold And we're tempted, and we fail and falter, and we need Christ. But in Jesus Christ, we are received, pardoned, transformed. And we pray for that ongoing transforming work by the Holy Spirit in our lives so that we may look more like Jesus, reflecting him, being like him, in a world that doesn't understand. Help us thy will to do. Teach us to follow him in our practical day-to-day life, at home, at work, in our families, in our church life with one another and make us honest and bring us day by day to Christ and treasuring the cross, saying, I have a future and a hope because of what he has done. In Jesus' name, amen.